Burmester. Good morning. It's a real pleasure to talk to you this morning. I'm Anna. I'm married to Simon. He's the pastor here. Um, we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, which um, we're really enjoying as a church. If you haven't been before, there um, all the sermons are online if you wanted to listen to them. This morning, uh, we're t- I'm talking on righteousness, and I've called it righteous with a question mark because really, in honesty, I couldn't really think of what to call it. So that, I thought, you know, that sort of covers all bases, doesn't it? Um, But I thought I'd just start with explaining what righteousness actually means, because I realize we use a lot of phrases in the church, which if you've been a Christian a while, they just kind of, you just use them. But in our everyday language, we don't use them so much. But by righteous, we mean that we have been morally and spiritually made right before God. We've been justified, which means just as if we have never sinned. And as Christians, we believe that happens not by completing a checklist of activities or by performing certain religious um, rituals or rites of passage, but by coming to God through Jesus. We believe that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again, that that exchange happened on the cross, that Jesus took everything that we have done wrong, which the Bible calls sin and trespass, but um, essentially it just means all the things that we've done against God, that Jesus took the cost of them on the cross. He died in our place, that when he rose again, it showed that he is victorious over death. And so when we die, our bodies will die, but we will be with Jesus forever and ever. The Christian righteousness is not dependent on what we do. It's actually dependent on Jesus and what he has already done for us. So I thought I'd just start by explaining that. Otherwise, as we're reading this, you're just going to switch off. Um, We're looking at Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18 today. It should come up on the screen behind me, but if you've got your Bibles, it would be great to open up on these pages as well. (coughs) It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, that's just 
um, things that you've, they've done to you or you've done to them. Neither will your father forgive yours. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your heads and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know, chapter 6 marks a real change in the Sermon of, in, on the Mount. It, has, it changes the focus to a Christian life. How do we live our life in the world, in the presence of God, submitting to God's will, and in d- entire dependence on him? Hendrickson, who's a really great theologian, says this. He calls these 18 verses the essence of righteousness. But the question is, how do we actually live our life in the world? Do we live it in the presence of God, in submission to God, and in dependence on him? You know, these verses are so challenging, aren't they? Because Jesus once again reminds us of the very real battle, even in acts of righteousness, between the flesh, which is our human nature, which fights against God, and the spirit of God that lives inside us and is changing us all the time. Jesus is essentially asking, to whom are you performing your religious acts? Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was, he's dead now, a 20th century preacher and teacher. He's a really amazing theologian, and lots of what I'm going to say today is actually like from his book, which was brilliant, called The Sermon on the Mount. It's like really thick, and I'd like to tell you that I read it all, but we're talking on righteousness and not lying, so actually I didn't. I just read the prayer bits, and it was really great. It was really, really good. But he says this. He says, you've only got two choices, essentially. We either act to please God, or we act to please ourselves, because by seeking the praise and honor of others, you are essentially looking to please yourselves. Galatians 1 verse 10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And again and again throughout the scriptures, we see it is very clear that you cannot please both God and men. You have to choose who you want to please. So where are we seeking our rewards? The clear conclusion of these verses would be that there is no reward from God from those who seek it from men. Jesus is clear that from where you seek your reward, essentially who you want to please, you will receive it. Our desire in giving, praying and fasting, actually in every way we act and we think in our intentions, should be to honour and please our God who sees everything It's a sobering thought that God sees everything. He sees our hearts. He sees in the secret places where we let nobody else see. He even sees the intentions of your actions and the thoughts of your mind. In Hebrews 4 verse 13, we're told, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to whom we must give an account. The phrase in Matthew 6, and your father who sees in secret will reward you, in the Greek text it could actually be rendered, and your father, the seeing one, will reward you in secret. You know, you may be able to sway the view of men, but God cannot be deceived, and there is no pretense with God. 
So with this in mind, let's look at the three areas of giving, fasting, and then we're going to look in much more depth at praying, okay? So firstly, giving. In verses 2 to 4, we read, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. It's really interesting here, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't say if you give, but when you give. Jesus' expectation was that people were giving as it's demanded by the law, it was um, exhorted by the prophets, and it's further endorsed all throughout the teachings of Jesus and throughout the New Testament. But to place these verses in context, in Christ's day, provision for the poor wasn't provided by the government, it was provided by the religious community who were taxed according to their ability. Then this was further topped up by voluntary gifts that were announced publicly in the synagogues. It's a bit like when you go to a charity event funded by a bank and um, you go in and actually you're not really sure who you're raising money for because the sign of whatever bank is so much bigger than the sign of the charity. It's a bit like that. That's the way to think of it. So Jesus was challenging the hypocrites. He was challenging people who pretended to give, but actually they expected to receive. They wanted to receive the praise, honour, and the acclamation of men. However, as believers, we're called to give out of love. Actually, everything we do flows out of love. We give out of love and gratitude to God, out of a desire to see the kingdom of God extend to the very ends of the world, out of compassion for the poor and needy, recognizing it is by the grace of God that we have what we have. We give because we want our finances to reflect the heart of Jesus, who gave all that he had to save us, as we're told in 2 Corinthians 8. Then we get to this funny bit in verse 3 where we're told about your right hand doing what your left hand doesn't know. It might be the other way around, I don't know. But um, it's impossible, isn't it? Because actually you have one brain, one body, and your hands know what they're doing generally. My children try to maintain they don't, but they do know what they're doing. Um, But Jesus here, he's Um, Is he encouraging like a trance or a hypnosis when we give? No, he's not encouraging that. What he is encouraging, as before we've read read in the Sermon on the Mount, um, he's using hyperbole. He's actually addressing not keeping a spiritual ledger in your head, um, or even on paper, of your giving and feeling, so that you're so pleased with yourself and praising yourself, essentially being proud. We give as we are moved by God and led by the Holy Spirit. And then we just need to forget about it and not keep thinking about it all the time. But practically how? Well, my new friend, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, we should have such a love for God that we have no time for ourselves. You know, we need to be so consumed with the love of God, so wrapped up in love with God that it drives our motives and our intention, and it actually leaves no room for pride or self-congratulation. Jesus, at the end of this passage, then talks about fasting. In verse 16 to 18, it says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Basically, Jesus is saying, look normal, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He's basically showing the same principle again. It's all about the intention of our hearts. For whom and why are you fasting? Is it to appear more righteous? Is it because if you think you fast, then you will be in a better place before God? Actually, we fast out of obedience to God because he asks us to, at, at times, to um, have a closer communion with God, to devote our time to the love of God, to actually increase our dependence on him and to humble ourselves before God. In Isaiah 58... It's the most beautiful passage on fasting. I haven't got time to read it today, but um, it's a really great passage to read on fasting in the week if you get time. I'm just going to read from verses 6 to 11. It says, Is this not the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will deliver you. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. And actually the point of fasting isn't, you can't fast and at the same time, be inflicting terrible things on another person. You know, Israel in the Old Testament, they always kept the religious festivals. They fasted and stuff when they were supposed to, but they also sacrificed children. You know, they did both, which God is saying, actually, it doesn't matter if you fast, if you're doing something horrendous and just hoping that by fasting you might not need to apologize, you might just be able to get righteous enough. Actually, no, we fast out of that love for God that drives us and causes our life to want to be the very best it can be before God. It's just so challenging, isn't it? And um, it's that thing of God being so concerned with your heart, not about how you act, because actually if your heart is in a good place with God, then your actions and your words will follow. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, in honesty, while I was preparing this, I very nearly refused to do it and said to Sai, no, I'm I'm just not going to do it. Because I know my secret thoughts. I know my intentions. And in honesty, I know more often than not that they are not really what I would like them to be. They're often selfish. They're often unkind. And they're often proud. But while I was seeking God about it and saying, I just don't think I can do it, really, the Lord graciously reminded me that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has clothed me with Jesus' righteousness. In Philippians 3, we read that having been found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You know, I am totally accepted and loved. I have Jesus' righteousness. And if you know Jesus today, so do you. He reminded me as I was seeking him that everything flows from love, not fear. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told it's the love of God that compels us. As we know the love of God more, as we rest in the love of God more, we actually become more like Jesus. It's his love that changes us. And as we wrestle with the flesh, with those things that are so unlike Jesus in the way that we behave, out of our deep love for Christ and our longing to be like him, he works a deep transformation in us, doesn't he? He changes us so graciously and kindly. As we humble ourselves before God, he lifts us up and he changes us. Essentially, these verses are saying that we seek honor and praise and reward from those who give us our security and identity in Christ because of his love, as we find our identity and security in him as beloved children of God. We're given more dignity, more purpose, and more love than anything or anyone else can ever offer you. So don't feel this morning that I'm bashing you over the head, I'm not. Don't feel condemned unless the Holy Spirit is convicting you, then um, submit to that happening in your life. But feel loved. Know that actually you have Jesus's righteousness, but God is concerned with your heart and he sees your very intentions. So with that in mind, let's look at prayer. You know, Jesus starts by identifying the false way to pray. And I thought I'd give you an example of a false way to pray, which I thought you'd all enjoy, which is from our marriage. Um, So, I don't know, I mean, you're probably all a lot more holy than me, but when you have an argument with your spouse, and, you know, you're clearly right and they're clearly wrong, which happens a lot in our marriage, I have to say. Um, You have this little, like, fallout, and you do the right thing, which is before you go to bed, you try and make it right between the two of you. You know, you never let the sun go down in your anger. Never more quoted than in marriage, yes? It actually applies to the whole of life, by the way, but, you know, we we tend to drive it into married life. Um, So you you say, let's pray together. Well, actually, it's normally not me. It's normally Si. So let's pray together. It's the right thing to do. And I in my great humility, um, might pray a prayer like this. I'm obviously exaggerating, although probably not that much. I pray something like, um, Lord, I just thank you for the verses about marriage. I thank you, Lord, that you say that a husband should love his wife like Christ loves the church, (laughs) that he should give himself up for her. Lord, we just thank you that so often in the Bible we can see women who really showed wisdom when the men did not. We just thank you, Lord, that you will help us see the right way and it's mine. Amen. It might be that it would be a false way to pray. It's basically concentrating on the one who is praying rather on the one to whom we are praying. Um, We're going to read in Luke 18 verses 9 to 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the sinner, because I think it sums up much better than my probably words will. Uh, 9 to 14 says, this is a parable that Jesus told. A parable is like a story that Jesus told so we could understand what he was saying. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, and the Pharisees were like religious people um, who just filled lots of laws and lots of little laws, and they thought that made them a bit better than everybody else, essentially. Standing by himself prayed this, God, I just thank you that I am not like that other man. I'm not like extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this horrible tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, remember justified is just as if you'd never sinned, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus then, in the part on prayer in Matthew 6, goes on to talk about how we pray in public. Now, don't get confused. Jesus isn't condemning public prayer, so you don't get out of coming to the prayer meeting. Um, In verses such as 2 Chronicles 6, Nehemiah 9, um, further on in the Luke 18 passage we just read, and Acts 4, they justify and encourage public prayer. So Jesus isn't saying don't pray in public. In fact, Community prayer, as we gather together as a group of believers, is so important. It's one of the most important callings, functions, duties, whichever phrase you want to give to it, of the church. It's to communally seek communion and dependence of God, to raise our voices together, to seek God's face, to pray for his will to be done. It is so important that we pray. You know, church, we must pray together We must seek God's face. You know, prayer meetings are not a week to get out or go into life group. Prayer meetings are a really important part of our life together as a church. We need to meet with God and humble ourselves before God and show our dependence on God. You know, if God doesn't meet us in what we're trying to do here in Halsham and across the world, it will not happen Nothing will happen. We might get more people coming along because the music sounds nice, but actually nothing will happen in people's hearts, which is where we need the change to take place, isn't it? We need to be seeking salvation and real breakthrough in our country. Our country is so far away from God, and we need to be together praying that God would break in. In these passages, Jesus is actually condemning ostentatious prayer, designed to be seen and admired and praised by others. Instead, Jesus is telling us to pray to our Father in heaven with deep sincerity, intimacy, and reverence. You know, I am helping the kids. I love them, not to five. They are so easy in comparison to adults, I have to say. You get what you get with kids, it's great. And um, when we're out there praying with them, I, I... I love it. I just, I just love children. They, um, and the times it actually works when we get them to pray, because sometimes, I'll be honest, it's a bit hit and miss. You know, they're kind of running around, and you're like, let's pray. And they're like, okay, and they're just running around the room. But sometimes when they actually sit and focus on praying, I love the truth of children. I love the fact that children know that they can approach Jesus, ones that have been raised to, to know that as a truth in their life. And I always do with the kids, because... Um, I find it helpful, Um, I'd say to them, you know, you can pray anyway, you can pray when you're walking along the road, you can pray just before you go to bed, you can pray when you're running about the garden, you can pray anytime, but when we pray together in here, we just close our eyes and put our hands together because it helps us not to be distracted with our hands at anyone, and it helps us if we close our eyes to concentrate. I obviously keep my eyes very open, and I um, really love children. I love the prayers of Lord, I just pray that you would 
I'm really, really sorry that I hit my brother. It feels so nice, but I do know it's wrong. Amen. <laughs> and I love it. I love the fact that, that children will not lie to God. You know, they won't come to him and pretend to be something they're not. They have kept something that we lose as we get to adults, which is we think we can pretend with God, but you can't. He knows what is going on. You know, sometimes we need to remember that we pray from our hearts and not from our pride. Prayer is close, intimate communion with God. It's sharing, talking, pouring out your heart to the one that you love. Verses 7 to 8 remind us that we don't need to pray in a perfect way, including big theological statements, theories, and views. I don't know if you've ever had an experience of praying with someone and you just think, I didn't even know that that theological view existed. I need to go and look it up. No, go home and have a little look. That's not what it's supposed to be like. It's supposed to be that we're talking with God naturally, spontaneously, lovingly, and truthfully with the God we love and who we have the undeserved honor of being loved by and who desires communion and closeness closeness with us. You know, we need to be really careful that set words and formulas, which can be really helpful. Everybody prays completely differently from another person, but we need to be really careful that they don't become attempts to fulfill our desires to be righteous and to not actually have that close communion with God. Again, it is all about the heart. It's all about the secret place that nobody else sees. You know, prayer is the highest activity of the soul. That was my friend Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that, and I took it because I liked it. It's the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. You know, it's through prayer that we examine ourselves and discover who we really are when we are alone with God. You know, I felt so challenged about prayer. Before I prepared this sermon, I actually thought, do you know what, having young children has really helped me have a conscious awareness of God, and I tend to pray all the time. I do. I just wander along praying. And then as I was praying, as I was preparing this, I just had that moment of thinking, I am terrible at praying. I'm so bad at praying. And I realized that I just don't prioritize prayer enough in my life. I run on self-dependence. I run on being able to wing it and it's really grieved me, actually, and humbled me to just examine myself and realize that without constant, committed, intentional times of prayer and speaking with God and building my intimacy with God, my spiritual condition becomes poor very, very quickly. It happens so quickly when we don't spend time with God. You know, men and women of the past who've extended the kingdom have been people of prayer. Men like Wycliffe, Wesley, Muller, Susanna Booth, who actually had eight children, which is a real challenge to us who say, I just don't get time to pray. She had eight, eight, and she devoted hours to prayer. In fact, Wesley is said to have proclaimed a very poor view of any Christian who did not pray for at least four hours a day. And I am so grateful that I'm going to meet him. He's going to be pretty cool in heaven. But I'm so grateful that I'll be transformed when I meet him because then he won't judge me. Hooray! Um, But, you know, the challenge here is what is your personal prayer life like with Jesus? Has it become so complicated in your head that you never pray? Actually, if you've never prayed before, just talk with God like you're talking with a friend. That's how you talk with God. That's how you pray with God. It doesn't need to be something really, really complicated. Jesus then gives us what Luther describes as the most wonderful verses in the whole Bible. It's the Lord's Prayer. 
The Lord's Prayer leads us into prayer in the right state of mind, and it gives us headings, if you like, to pray under, which cover every area of our life. So it starts with our Father. This is an instant reminder of who we approach. We approach our Father. It's with confidence, pleasure, and delight that we get to call the God of the whole universe, our Father. In Romans 8, we're told, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, whatever your earthly father was like, if you are a believer here today, then you have a perfect heavenly father whose arms are always open to you. He's never too tired. He's never overwhelmed. He's never too busy. He's not absent. He knows you and you know him. He's not unknown. He is the perfect father. And that's how we approach God as we pray. And then it says, in heaven, which is just a little reminder to us that whilst we approach God, with the confidence of children going to their father and sitting on his knee and talking to him about life, actually, we need to remember that we approach with reverence. We are approaching the almighty God, the one who flung stars into space, who sustains all of life. It's the mystery of the gospel that our father is God almighty, eternal, king of kings and lord of lords. The Lord's Prayer then goes on to say, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is a really weird word, isn't it, that we never, ever use. It means honor, glory, and praise to God's name. You know, before we start making requests to God, we start with thankfulness, honor, and praise. And Jesus on earth set us the example here. He always had a passion to glorify the Father, didn't he? All the time he gave glory to the Father. And practically, if you really struggle just getting going on uh, praise... You can use the praise psalms. There's a list of them up there on the screen. It's 8, 76, 100, 111, 145, 150. There's a lot more than that, but that's some you could start with. And you'll find as you read those psalms, your heart will just lift in praise to God. And it just makes it so much easier to just get that process of praising God going. It then says, your kingdom come and your will be done. The kingdom of God is essentially the rule and reign of God. It's longing and praying for the rule and reign of God to increase in our hearts, to come into our homes, to meet with our children, to change our families, to be in our workplaces. Basically, you are praying for the success of the gospel. And you all have areas where you really, really know that the kingdom of God really needs to break into those areas. And it says on earth, as it is in heaven... In heaven, the will of God is always being done perfectly, and our desire should be that the earth is the same as in heaven. Can I just ask you as a little side point, do you really want God's kingdom to come here as in heaven? Do you delight in kingdom values, kingdom morals, and kingdom ways? Do you show it in what you watch, what you listen to, what you read, and what you say? You know, it's I find it so sad because I quite often hear Christians, only in the West, to be honest, say that they um, feel so sorry for themselves, like a summary, they might word it a bit better, but they feel sorry for themselves or their children because their children are having to live as a believer or they're having to live as a believer and it's just so hard and awful. No, no, that's not right. It's the greatest honour 
to live your life with heavenly values and morals. It is the best way to live. Do not dabble with earthly values. Do not mix it up and have one foot in earthly values and one foot in in kingdom values. You know, we bring heaven to earth. Where we are, the influence of the kingdom of God should be there. And it's just a little challenge I want to give as an aside for people to reflect upon. Then in verses 11 to 15, we're giving, given the petitions or the things that we ask for. It says, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus has given this prayer, which covers all the areas of our life, physical, mental, and spiritual health, all covered in these three simple phrases. Give us this day our daily bread is your physical health, your earthly needs. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? Jesus teaches us to pray from heaven, coming to earth, to the fact we need to eat. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. You know, God is concerned for our needs. He really cares for me and for you. You know, God actually already knows our needs, but the heart of prayer is relationship between us and God. It keeps us in contact and dependency on God. God loves to hear your prayers. In Revelation, we're told the whole of heaven is silent as the prayers of the believers are poured out in heaven. We're told in Psalms that every one of our tears is kept and recorded by God. God, the one who sustains the whole universe, delights to hear your prayers. Then says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And this is perhaps the most difficult part of the prayer. But God starts by getting us to remember what we have been forgiven from. He asks us to cross-examine our heart, the secret places that nobody knows about. Nobody knows that when you were nice to that person, you actually wanted to punch them in the face. God knows it. And so, actually, when we come to God, we are honest with him, and we confess our sins. We say what we've done wrong, and we ask God to forgive us, knowing that he will forgive us. You know, as we realize how much we are forgiven, how we are freely forgiven, We cannot refuse to forgive others. This passage is so clear, isn't it? That proof of our salvation is that we forgive others. If you struggle with forgiveness, read this passage and let it remind you, proof of our salvation is that we are able to forgive others. The parable of the steward in Matthew 18 puts it really clearly as well. So if you struggle with forgiveness, read that parable as well, and it will really help you just be able to forgive. The Lord Jesus has forgiven us so much. Then it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's interesting, isn't it, that God does actually allow us to be tested. He's preparing us for glory. He's strengthening us, and he's purifying us. But this is praying that we are not led, or perhaps more accurately, we don't take ourselves into situations where we are liable to sin. So if you struggle with areas, pray that God will help you not to be led to doing stupid stuff or not to be led into places where you know you're going to fall, actually. It's uh, praying that nothing will come between our relationship with God and between our uninterrupted communion with God. 
You know, we need God to rescue us and deliver us, not only from the sin and the evil from the devil, which are very true and very real, and we do need to pray protection over um, each other and ourselves and our kids. That's really, really important. But actually, it's also about the sin and the evil, which is in our own heart, which is there. We know it's there. And again, we finish by arriving at that secret place. God sees our hearts. He is the seeing ones. One, he sees the secret places. He knows our motives, our intentions. He knows who we are seeking to please. So how much are we dependent on God? How much are we seeking to please him? How much do we pray to him and grow our close, intimate communion and intimacy with God? It's so challenging, isn't it? Because it all flows from love. It's not a religious act because you have to and you're so frightened if you don't do it, you're going to go to hell. That's not what it's about. It's about that love that we have for the almighty God who sent his own son to die for us. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Um, We're going to take communion as response.